Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert. Well, welcome to this bonus episode of our podcast. We are here tonight because we've had this pretty monumental uh, constitutional shift um, in how abortion is viewed by our federal government. On Friday, June 24th, uh, the Supreme Court uh, overturned long-held um, legal precedent uh, from the Supreme Court case Roe v. Wade, which was actually a compilation of several different um, cases of women. And this has really put lawyers and providers and historians in sort of a, what do we do? How do we cope with this? This is a huge shift. Um, Some states had trigger laws that went into effect if Roe v. Wade were ever overturned. And so for some people in some states in the United States, um, the effect was immediate. For others, it doesn't really have an effect other than knowing that, you know, their sisters in other states have fewer rights today than they did last week. Um, so I've invited to join me on the podcast, uh, Dr. Gutierrez Romine. Uh, she is a historian from La Sierra University in Southern California, um, where she is a medical historian. She teaches um, about gender, sexuality, and abortion history in particular. Um, her book from the uh, back, back alley to the border, is that right? Um, is a wonderful read. You, it's available on Amazon. Um, it's published through the Nebraska Press, and you can find it. So find it on those places. It's a wonderful history of what the United, what's California in particular, was like before um, abortion was legal in in that state. And a lot of the things she talks about in that book play out in other states, it just, she focused her history on California in particular. We'll have a link to her book in our show notes. We also have um, an OBGYN who has joined us on the podcast today. Uh, She has practiced all over the country from Utah to Vermont to New Hampshire. And um, I'm so grateful to have her here to give us some insights about what this looks like for a provider um, and and especially be the sort of like medical voice here in, um, because so much I think a lot oftentimes, and I actually was corrected by her the other day and some of the things that I was saying. So I'm really grateful um, to have her here to correct some of the narrative that that other people um, have been sharing, especially online (laughs) in the last week. Um, So this is a big shift to a state-by-state approach to handling um, health, um, human rights, and um, this is, uh, you know, monumental. It is going to be a very historic moment um, studied by future generations, and, you know, one thing I wanted to say to all of our teachers listening is that um, anytime you are in the middle of one of these moments with your students, feel free to make your students the primary sources. Journaling is a really great exercise to do with them, have them write about their experiences, what they've read, what they're feeling. Um, and you know, we're, we're living that right now. Abortion is still legal in many states. I think that's something a lot of our foreign listeners may not appreciate or understand how the legal system in our country works. Um, And it's really important that patients and providers familiarize themselves with the laws in their states. Um, So I want to turn it over first to Alicia, um, Dr. Gutierrez-Romine. 
this, it, one, you know, one of the things that anytime abortion comes up, there are uh, the words murder and misogyny get thrown out really, really fast. And so I'm just curious, um, I know in a lot of the research you've done, um, why do women seek abortions? Why, why is this a thing? Um, and, and can you give us some background on, on what you know about that? Yeah. So, I mean, historically women get them for a lot of different reasons, but, um, and maybe this is something that our OBGYN could maybe speak to a, a little bit more when she gets a chance, but abortion itself is a nuanced term that can be used to describe a number of, of different medical procedures. It's not just that it's elective abortion is also the medical term that's used for treating a number of, of different things. So when we're saying, uh, you know, that someone's having an abortion, we typically tend to think of the elective variety where a woman is choosing to, to have this procedure, but it can also refer to miscarriage. Uh, it's just that that's not the term that we typically associate it with. Mm -hmm. So when we're looking at people who choose to have abortion, it's often for financial reasons, education reasons, um, a lot of the, the women who have abortions historically have already been mothers. Uh, so at the data that I had when I was looking at this, you know, in the 20s, 30s, 40s, all the way up to the 60s, um, almost 80% of the women who got abortions were married. Uh, many of them already had kids. And this data is a little bit different now in the present day. Um, but when I was doing this study, we were looking primarily at women who were concerned about the livelihoods of their existing children um, and who are really trying to make difficult decisions for themselves and their families. So when we're thinking of elective abortions, um, it can be for a variety of, of different reasons. Hmm. Doctor, do you want to um, comment? Yeah, I think... Alicia has a good point. I mean, the first comment I'd like to make is that the term, I'm going to use the term um, termination because that is something that I've been using my entire medical career for an elective abortion is, is a termination. In the medical field, um, we, from a simple um, first visit with any patient, um, we discuss how their, their gravity and their parity. And so how many times they've been pregnant, how many times that's resulted in a live birth, how many live children they have and how many abortions, um, they've had, but that term really means spontaneous, um, or terminations. And so it, it already historically has been a gray area as far as the word abortion, um, because really in the medical field, we consider that a miscarriage for a majority of women. Um, you know, terminations, yes, are common, but spontaneous miscarriages are more common. And so um, I like to separate it out as termination is, is an elective abortion versus a spontaneous abortion, which is a miscarriage. Plus that um, for patients, it is and, and everyone that is so, abortion is such a charged word. Um, when I'm meeting a patient, uh, you know, on first get-go, I'm not gonna say how many abortions have you had and that, that immediately they, you know, will re reel back. So I said, you know, use the term miscarriage versus termination. And then it um, even just is a much more open dialogue with a patient. So it's very gray 
um, that word anyway. So I will use termination here um, when I speak about elective abortions, just because it's it just um, a, a less charged word and a less confusing word. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 24%, recent data shows that 24% of U.S. women will have an abortion by the age of 45. And I was reading about public opinion polls related to abortion. And I was actually really surprised that your gender, um, well, you know, 60% of women supported abortion access to some extent, um, only 60%, right? Greater margins were actually along the political divide and um, by age, younger women um, supported it more um, and democratic people, um, 89% of Democrats supported abortion. Um, and so I think I think that's tricky. And obviously all of that data, one of the things that's really hard in polling on abortion is keeping track of like you both are distinguishing, it's gray what we're talking about. And so when you, when these pollers are asking these questions, they need to be, the pollers and the questions need to be really specific so we can get to understanding what Americans really think. And so, um, you know, I'm trusting Pew Research Center where that data is coming from, um, you know, I'm trusting them to, you know, have good questions, but we've seen polling be wrong, wrong in the past. So, um, one of the things that I hear from people that are anti-abortion is that it's a really dangerous procedure. And this is really tricky when we show, you know, Dr. Gutierrez, your uh, research, you know, shows how dangerous um, it was for women when abortion was illegal. And, um, and you know, and even uh, different data uh, organizations sort of break it down by, you know, here's what's happening when it's safe. Here's what's happening when it's e easily accessible um, and it's being done by a certified provider. I'm gonna bring this over to the doctor. So is abortion dangerous? So terminations are, are can be done in two ways, um, medically and, uh, or surgically. Neither are, relatively, they are both safe, neither are dangerous. Um, when you look at statistics, they will split. Um, the reason I say there are two, because they will split the statistics into um, each of those, a, a medical or a surgical. Um, when you when you look at danger, maternal mortality is, of course, um, you know, the most dangerous thing. Um, what is the risk that this patient is going to die? Um, that is maternal mortality. And remaining pregnant in carrying a pregnancy um, to term, um, when you look at live births, maternal mortality is significantly higher if a patient remains pregnant and goes through pregnancy than if a patient has a legal, I'm not saying illegal, but has a legal termination, whether that's a medical or a surgical. So if a patient if, um, carries a pregnancy and we talk 100,000 live births, the risk of maternal mortality is seven. Um, if you're looking at a patient terminating either surgical or medical, that, that risk is less than one in 100,000. So it's significantly actually safer to terminate by, again, statistically than, than it is to carry a pregnancy because pregnancy is dangerous. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny, I was um, at my local coffee shop the other day flipping through a local newspaper and they had a political cartoon where this person had, you know, the sort of angel devil on their shoulder and the angels like do the right thing, do the right thing. And the devil on the shoulder is it just the caption underneath said, you know, the left freaking out uh, that they can't kill babies anymore. 
And that was it. That was all the commentary. No more, no more details. And, you know, I think what strikes me about that cartoon and about listening to you talking is just how complicated um, this issue is and thinking about it from a maternal health standpoint, right? And, and you know, I don't think that, you know, the, the nuances of this conversation and the impact it has on women's and women and children um, is, is way more complicated than that, you know, sort of allowed. Um, a lot of, you know, and, and I, I think the anti-abortion folk do a strong job reminding, you know, talking about the start of life and um, across the board in polls, Americans agree across the board that, you know, life begins at conception. Um, that was a pretty overwhelming thing, but that doesn't necessarily impact their view on abortion and, and what should be done from, from there. So I thought that was sort of an interesting um, statistic. And I'm, I'm curious, Doctor, where do you fall on the question of abortion as ending life? Does that, and, and specifically, I think elective abortion, which is where, um, where this issue I think hinges for a lot of people. I think that's um, a very interesting question. I think that I myself have changed my view on that back and forth. Um, in my lifetime and career, I treat the patient in front of me. If they bring their a partner or a visitor, a family member, a loved one to the visit, I'm treating them as well. Um, the patient in front of me has a fetus um, that relies on my patient um, for survival. And I ultimately, um, I feel that I have to meet the patient at their goal. And if the patient, a, a common um, thought out there is, is it is when a, when a fetus is viable, which um, that has changed a little bit. It used to be 24 weeks, um, now, now 23 weeks really. And quite frankly, some centers will resuscitate at 22 weeks. So it depends a little bit, that's gray as well, but I, um, you know, if a patient wants everything, absolutely everything done at 23 weeks to their fetus, that really is when life starts for that patient. And then for me as well, my goal is to meet them where, where they are. Um, I personally feel that life starts um, when a fetus becomes a baby. So at delivery. Um, but again, that's not how my patients feel. And I try to meet them where they are. And I want to talk to them about their fetus or whatever terminology they'd like me to use um, um, and talk about viability and when they think that life starts. You, know, you talked about the fetus's reliance on your patient, right? And I think that's a really, that's a nuance as well, right? That, that might, their life might've started at conception, but that life is reliant on, you know, and there's I, you know, there's no there's no parallel in any other medical experience. I mean, any anything that's growing on you, you can remove without question, right? Um, I I, oft, I you know one thing I read somewhere was comparing it to you know penalizing people who don't donate their kidneys to someone who's dying, right? So you know like I thought that was sort of an interesting 
um, mental game to play. But it, but but the challenge I think is that there's no there's no parallel to any other medical procedure. Um, so I think it's it's really challenging, and I I wish so much that a lot of the dialogue reflected the the gray areas that you're referring to. Um, you share. Thank you for sharing your personal opinion as well. Um, is there consensus among professionals in your field? So we're we're talking to a historian. We're talking to an OBGYN. Is there pretty like any uniformity or um, you know I've seen a lot of these organizations coming forward and denouncing the Supreme Court decision, um, but I know there's got to be opposition somewhere, right? Um, I, I, not. <laughs> Yes, there is opposition. People have their uh, personal opinions, but the big organizations, um, the American College of OBGYN being kind of the, the biggest, um, kind of broadest OBGYN um, journalist group has said from the get-go way prior to a week ago, um, they support um, equality, women's rights, bodily autonomy, um, and including in all of that and terminations as well. Um, so, so they have been unwavering in their, um, in their um, dissent of, of in the last week, but also their, what the statements they've put forward from the get-go um, and then many other OB-JOIN organizations across the country now really have um, been unwavering. Yeah. Alicia, how about in his history? Are historians of the American Historical Association, where are they at with this issue? So I, I will be honest and say that I have not uh, gone out of my way to see if there has been an official statement or anything like that from any of the organizations that I'm part of. Um, however, they have spoken out previously about some of the other issues that have come up. So I would imagine that if they have not already drafted statements that they are in the works. Um, but there was something that I was also going to uh, kind of bring up regarding um, that I think perhaps our doctor can speak to. Um, one of the things that I noticed in my own research when looking at um, terminations in the 50s and 60s through um, approval of therapeutic abortion committees was that there was this um, discussion about these laws inhibiting um, physicians from being able to meet their patients where they are. So if you have, uh, you know, a, a, a woman who comes before this therapeutic abortion board and she is requesting, um, she's requesting a termination, uh, it's really dependent on her physician kind of seeking out the approval of this board and this board kind of determining yes or no. And so it takes away that physician patient relationship and it puts it in the hands of either hospital attorneys or these committees. Um, and so it infringes on that. It prevents doctors from being able to, to practice um, independently. And so this was actually something uh, I was working on a little piece and I think I pulled up the uh, ACOG statement regarding uh, fetal heartbeat bills. Um, I think it was from 2017 is when I pulled it up. And one of the comments that they mentioned was regarding this kind of infringing on the physician patient relationship and what effects that'll have if a physician says, okay, this is an ectopic pregnancy and I need to go in and I need to uh, perform an abortion. Um, 
but now the physician is the one who is concerned of whether this qualifies as being her, you know, necessary to save her life, necessary for her health, uh, and then kind of having to appeal to maybe not therapeutic abortion committees now, but having to appeal to, you know, hospital administration, hospital attorneys saying, you know, will we be liable? Will we be at fault if I perform this procedure? Am I going to be sued? And so this puts women in, um, you know, the position where they are kind of at the mercy of, it's not just about the relationship with the physician that they have, they're at the mercy of what type of trouble is this hospital willing to get into potentially for them in this situation? Is the hospital secure enough in the decision that they'll say, yeah, of course, go perform this. Um, or you know what, we don't really want to be involved. We don't want potentially to be subject to investigation, just turn them away. Um, and, you know, in the way the laws were structured in the 50s and 60s, if the physician performed the therapeutic abortion and someone later said, well, that wasn't really a justifiable reason, let's arrest you, let's kind of investigate, let's go through the trial and everything like that. But if the physician refused to perform the procedure and the woman died, there was no penalty. So if all of the penalties are skewed towards the physician and he's he or she is most likely to face those um, penalties, if they gamble on performing the procedure, then the option that's best might be not performing the procedures at all so that they can avoid potentially this legal limbo and you know not really have to, to worry about it. And so it is a question of vagueness and how are we determining and defining these categories that we didn't have figured out in the 1950s and 60s. And I can't say that we have them figured out today either. Yeah, I think unfortunately there are just more questions. Um, a lot of doctors are coming forward and saying, okay, so you have an exemption for maternal health. What are we talking about when we say that? Define maternal health. Um, you know, for me, I've had two children by C-section. It's probably not great to have multiple C-sections in a row, right? So like at what point is my, is it maternal health? Probably not going to die, you know, if I had another baby and the doctor could tell me, but um, but it wouldn't be great for me. And um, that's that's challenging versus like, do they need to be you know, like convulsing on a table. And then we say, okay, now, now they're, now they're about to die. So we do that. And, you know, the damage that we're putting the women through as we're figuring out, are, are they dying yet is, is a really huge gray area. Um, you mentioned also the, the six week, um, you know, the laws in various states that are banning abortion at six weeks. That's really, that's a really, short time frame and it's it's not six weeks a lot of people don't know they're pregnant by that point so that's pretty that's pretty challenging um i you know when i was trying to have babies i was monitoring it and you know i was getting negative 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 and then finally i'd stop you know my anxiety would i try to control my anxiety and say it's not a big deal just wait another few days <laughs> you know and then you would get it but then you'd only have you know a, a week maybe to to get an appointment and do what you needed to do before then so it's really challenging. Um, and that's me, you know, monitoring it because I'm expecting to be pregnant. So um, really tough. Did you want to comment on that, Professor? Well, and I was just going to say that, generally speaking, I feel like there's a big education and knowledge gap when it comes to women's bodies versus men's bodies. And we have situations right now where you have people who are not medical professionals who are drafting laws about 
bodies and medicine. And, you know, if you have someone saying re-implant the ectopic pregnancy and it doesn't work that way, you know, why are these people like, stay in your lane, please stay in your lane. Um, But but, but women's bodies themselves, right? The idea that, oh, it's six weeks, like that's plenty of time. Like the fact that they think that is, is I think further proof of this, this knowledge gap of, you know, understanding women's bodies, how all of these things work. And, you know, it was just as bad in the time periods that I studied because there was so much kind of shame and secrecy surrounding studies, women studying women's bodies. And we haven't, kind of completely gone in the other direction yet. We haven't made that full 180 yet to actually kind of understand and and speak about women's bodies and pregnancy and menstruation and things like that. We haven't gotten to that level yet. Yeah, we also are, are working with a medical profession that is founded by predominantly men and using a lot of things that, you know, a culture around medicine that came from the Greeks, you know, with the wandering womb. Um, and I want to make a plug for one of a previous episodes that we had. We uh, interviewed Eleanor Cleghorn, who recently wrote a book called Unwell Women. And it was about the history of the medical profession when it came to dealing with women's bodies. And it's a, it's a really great read. Um, and she came on our podcast. She's British, so she has a great accent. You can tune in and listen to that. Um, but I wanted to bring it to the doctor because we were talking about this, you know, encroachment in your profession. And and just, I would love to have you react to that. How do you feel? Um, you know, as, it must be frustrating seeing some of the dialogue from the left and the right right now online, um, and perhaps some of the inaccuracies you're seeing. It's exceedingly frustrating. Um, it's also terrifying. Um, as a woman, as uh, an aunt, as a physician, as a friend, I mean, um, it's terrifying. Um, and I, right. I think there's a lot of, um, when we say six weeks, that's six weeks from last menstrual period. That's not, not six weeks from conception. That's four weeks. And so you're, I mean, yes, you're, 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 you have such a narrow window. Um, and a lot of places that have a six week ban, there's also a 72 hour waiting period. So you take six weeks and they have to also wait 72 hours. So really they have to know by five and a half weeks from their last menstrual period. And then right now I am, I I'm not practicing in a state that has a six week ban, but I can imagine that lines are out the door. Um, so it's, it's, it's scary. Um, I, um, I, I never really, I'm privileged and I'm privileged to have practice entirely after Roe v. Wade. And, um, I never have thought twice about taking a patient to the operating room for an ectopic pregnancy or using chemotherapy, which is medical management for an ectopic pregnancy, have never thought twice once we have the diagnosis that that is the right approach and, you know, talk about the risks and benefits and alternatives with the patient. And that is the approach. I, and I cannot imagine now that we're in a time where we have, I have to think about my profession and my license and the hospital and the legality of an ectopic pregnancy, which is a non-viable pregnancy. Um, that is so asinine to me. Um, 
and that's that's just an ectopic pregnancy. A lot of pregnancies are what we call pregnancies of unknown locations, meaning they're early, early pregnancies um, that we're still trying to figure out um, why are they not growing normally and where are they? Are they an ectopic or are they a failing intrauterine pregnancy or they are maybe a pregnancy that will become a twin in normal twin intrauterine pregnancy. And so there's a, a lot of gray area. We'll keep saying that, but um, it's scary that things like surgery for an ectopic pregnancy or chemotherapy for an ectopic pregnancy or a DNC for a non-viable pregnancy of unknown location are all potential abortions per the government that has no, no idea about medicine and what these um, therapies can do to help a patient, can help diagnose, can help save a patient. Um, and that's, that's scary that we even have to think about that now. My mom had an ectopic pregnancy um, between my sisters and, um, you know, not having doctors monitoring it, not, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't expecting to be pregnant and all of those things and um, wasn't feeling very well and was walking they returned home and went into the house and um, she collapsed. She felt, you know, she fell to the ground unconscious and my dad had to carry her um, and rush her to the hospital. And it's just like, you know, I don't think people understand that that's, you know, those are, those are just not even, those are dangerous for women. Those, those will kill you. Um, so it's pretty, pretty unbelievable. Um, you know, it's hard because we're talking about such a spectrum of different types of abortions um, and, and at different points in time. And, and like you were talking about the gray areas and what that looks like. And I, you know, half the time I go to the OBGYN, I'm like, you know, I feel like I'm trying to get a medical degree at the same time as I'm learning this information about my own body. Um, and there is so much. And I, you know, part of me is just like, trust the experts. here. <laughs> um, and, you know, I've seen very similar encroachment into the field of education. And it's really hard because, you know, the, the commissioner in my state doesn't even have a degree in education. And so, you know, it's like, the, why, why are you making laws about pedagogy when you don't know how it works, you know, and uh, there's so much variation there. So it's, it's a, I think, a reoccurring problem in our, in our society across many fields. Um, the American Historical Association is having a, a, a series of upcoming events. So I know um, Dr. Gutierrez and I are both members of that. They have an event this summer called Abortion Choice and the Supreme Court, the History Behind the Headlines, um, with a series of moderators from um, history professors um, to lawyers and things like that. So I encourage everybody to, to check out that event, especially if you're in the field of history, so you can kind of know what you're talking about in these conversations. Um, what will illegal abortion mean um, in how it will be enforced in various places? What, um, Alicia, I want to come to you because I feel like you have a really good sense looking at the history of what that, how that plays out in different places. So I think it's important to remember that, you know, when I did the research for this, I was looking at a time period when abortion was surgical. It was mostly before antibiotics, it was mostly surgical, and uh, it wasn't medicated or anything like that. So I think the fact that I think around 90% of, of um, terminations are medicated uh, is going to play a significant factor in what illegal abortion looks like today. 
So is that purchasing, um, you know, some of these pills online and getting them across state lines? Um, and that might be something that's going to change the way that that illegal abortion looks. And that might be something that also affects the, the mortality of things like this, right? Because we're not going to see you know, ideally, as many instances where people are using random instruments uh, to, to induce an abortion, there are all of these medical options that are available, and hopefully more people are privy to that and are taking advantage of that. So hopefully, if there is another wave of, of illegality, um, hopefully this will be much safer because of those medical interventions. Um, however, you know, laws could change in terms of what it means to ship something across state lines, right? We saw this with transportation and, you know, in the 50s and 60s, people crossing state lines, national lines, uh, in order to try to procure these different things. So is that going to be something that we look into in terms of, you know, mailing these, um, you know, mailing these things across state lines? But I think the people who are most at risk of some of these dangerous procedures are going to be those who are, you know, in more rural areas. They're going to be those with, you know, who have less knowledge, understanding, or education of access to some of these drugs. They're going to be people who have fewer resources, whether that's in terms of time, whether that's in terms of money. Um, and it's going to be people who have, have less education. Uh, so the people who are are most marginalized in society, they might be the ones who tend to or have to resort to some of these more dangerous means. But I think that's going to be something that we'll kind of see as, as time goes on. Hmm. That's what, you brought up something really interesting about transporting these items across state boundaries. And, you know, I obviously this court is not interested in the same arguments that Roe v. Wade made um, about um, you know, about, about abortion, but I, I'm wondering if interstate commerce, you know, Congress has a right to regulate interstate commerce. And, um, I, I'm curious if that is, is an argument that could be sort of negotiated to, to, to legalize this across state boundaries, or at least make that option a, a safe and a way that, um, it can be provided. Um, doctor, what do you think about this? What do you think is going to um, change or how will this be enforced? How will this impact your profession moving forward in different states? I think that is so state by state dependent. Um, and um, I, as you said, I practiced in Utah, um, which is very different from the state laws in Vermont and New Hampshire. Um, and now I'm in New Hampshire, but um, I've reached out to colleagues who are still practicing um, in, in New Hampshire and our, or sorry, in Utah and our abortion providers in Utah. And um, they're still trying to figure that out. Um, they, in the state of Utah, the, um, um, they have two weeks now um, where they can figure it out. I guess one week now. Um, and, and it's hard to say um, if, if that, you know, 90% medical abortion will increase, um, especially in states that are banning um, because of, um, because of, of our access to, to medical abortion and, and these laws. Um, I'm happy to, to provide resources at the end of this discussion, but um, 
but that's that's going to be the best option um, is is actually European um, physicians who um, and a pharmacy in India um, through aid access and that's how how people will get medical um, medical um, terminations in, in states that don't allow any other options. But of course, yes, that takes the ability to have internet, that takes the education to know how to look it up and where to look it up. That takes money. I mean, this none of this is cheap and we're still looking at 100 to 200 dollars if not slightly more for um pills um so that's that's a lot um and i think we are going to further widen the gap as as alicia was saying um in i i am optimistic naively so that um we won't see what they did back pre roe v wade with as many um, kind of horrific stories of of abortions performed at home, um, increasing the risk of mortality and sepsis. Um, um, but again, maybe that's my naive of me to think that. But I am hopeful that um, that access either internationally um, or transportation to states that do provide um, medical and surgical abortions will will happen. Hmm. Um, there's some data about, you know, people taking those pills without uh, a physician's support um, and, and how that is, even though pills are very safe, it's still in the realm of an unsafe abortion because you don't have that doctor right down the street that you can get to if it's not going right um, for some reason. And um, so that can increase um, maternal mortality. And we also live in you know, the country leading the developed world in maternal mortality, partly because of, you know, the hostility to, um, to women making choices about, about their bodies. So it's, it's, it's really challenging. Um, I want to bring us to some final thoughts or final words. Um, Dr. Gutierrez Romine, would you mind sharing with us your sort of final thoughts and takeaways? So I think, you know, if this is something that concerns you. Um, and instead of feeling like you can't do anything, I think some ways to feel like you're taking action are looking into abortion funds. Um, there are some people out there who are creating funds for helping patients get across state lines or to go to other places that um, are, are, are more favorable uh, towards abortion care. Um, I think it's important to maybe have some of these difficult conversations with your friends and families, pull out some of the nuance and explain how abortion isn't just um, something that selfish women do or something, you know, explain to them that there's a whole lot of nuance that goes into it. Um, trust women that when they're making these decisions, they've already made a lot of considerations and that it's important to, to kind of recognize that they are trying to control their bodies, their destinies, their futures and care for their families. Uh, I think read up, uh, you uh, mentioned, uh, I think providing some types of resources or is the doctor who mentioned providing some resources. I'm happy to supply a little bibliography um, regarding reproductive rights and reproductive justice so that people can, can look into that. Um, you know, reach out to you know, the people who represent you, let them know um, how you feel, vote when, when, when your time comes up for that. And 
Um, find ways that you can uh, interact in your community to help support um, access to healthcare uh, that, that these people need, yeah. You know, it's funny, education is actually one of the other major predictors of how people feel about abortion. And so, you know, it's hard because you're saying, like, read more, do more. But, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the people that oppose it like those really simple, it's kill babies, it's not all that, you know, one one person likened, you know, leftist uh, arguments about abortion, like jumping through a bunch of hoops to try to prove, to unprove that it's this, you know, and they just wanted the simple answer. Um, And to me, as an educator, I go, okay, that's really narrow thinking. Um, That's somebody not, you know, wrapping their mind around complexity, um, struggling to take perspective. Um, And, you know, one of the ironies, um, and I I loved this in your book, Dr. DeCares, remind you, you mentioned that um, women, all the cases about, um, you know, illegal abortion actually forced women to kind of come out of the closet and tell their abortion stories. And it is the share, it is those sharing of stories that really brought it to public attention. Um, it's different, you know, so many of the people that I know who've had abortions, nobody knows that they've had abortions. It's like the secret that I carry. And sort of the irony about it is that they now have to essentially come out of the closet and and share that in order for people to understand it's someone you know. It's some, you know, it's it's someone you know who's in this situation and and that changes things for people. Um so and it, it shouldn't be like that, but it is this pattern, part of this pattern that does keep happening unfortunately. So hopefully we can make things better for the future generations of women so that they don't have to divulge the most intimate aspects of their lives because it really isn't anyone else's business. I mean, the irony is that's what Roe protected, right? Your right to privacy so that you didn't have to come out and air those things, but but we're here. Um, doctor, would you mind wrapping up for us? What are your final thoughts and, and takeaways? I, I completely agree with what's been said. I think educate um, is key. I think donate. Um, there are big organizations. Um, I tend to support those um, because they can have have a large impact. Um, um, but either national or statewide organizations um, to donate and 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 vote. Um, we are where we are today because of our um, people who were voted in into their power. And um, I think that is a way for us to. Um, improve because in my mind, um, people ask how I'm doing and I'm sad and I'm frustrated and I'm terrified, but I do strongly believe that, that we will do better. Um, I think that people, I say women, I don't mean to, um, um, to say pregnant women, cause it's not just women, but, um, people who are pregnant deserve better. Um, and I, and I feel that we will get there. Okay. Well, I, I wish I shared your optimism, but you're the one in, in the hot seat. So I'm going to trust you. <laughs> um, I want to make a couple plugs for folks. Um, definitely the American Historical Association's event this summer will be really telling. Um, please check out Gutierrez Romine's book. Um, there's an account called the Mama Attorney, which um, she's a lawyer, um, which by the way, if you need a lawyer, definitely hit her up. She's in California, so she won't necessarily be able to help you. But, 
um, but but check that out. She has a lot of really amazing resources about the law and some of its implications. Also, um, she points out some of the ironies in law, things like how you can't claim an unborn child on a tax form. Um, you can't um, file for um, parental support from the from the father of the child um, until the child is born. So this is, you know, this is a really um, great account to follow if you're on, on social media, um, but definitely head over to her website. It's themamaattorney.com. That can give you some of the, in some insights into the, the legal implications for you if, you if you ever need that. One of the best things that people can do right now is donate to different organizations, feminist organizations across the board. Um, and, you know, there are different women's foundations in every state. So check those out. Thank you both for being here tonight. I really appreciate it. Thank you all for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.